If you've ever had children or been a child yourself, then you probably know that one of the fundamental principles of parenting centers around giving your children ever-increasing age-appropriate responsibilities. And the reason you do this is to develop the kind of habits and character that they're going to need to handle the enormous responsibilities of adulthood. They think they have a lot of responsibilities now, but trust me, it gets bigger. Turns out we are not asking our children to set the table, do the dishes, or mow the lawn because we're looking for a personal servant. It's a side benefit. Or because of the extraordinarily efficient and high-quality job they do. The real reason that we're entrusting our children with these little responsibilities is because once they master these, then ideally they are, they are better equipped to handle the bigger responsibilities in life. If they've proven that they can make their lunch or set the table or take out the garbage, and I recognize it can take years to get to that point, but once they've proven this, then well, maybe you'll think about letting them take out the family car or take somebody out on a date. And then those bigger responsibilities are really about getting them prepared for the really big responsibilities of life, where they are entrusted with a job, a house, a mortgage, a family of their own. Well, God works on this principle as well. He, as we will see this morning, entrusts his people with certain small responsibilities that we call life and ministry and that this is a preparation ground, a time of training and testing to get us ready for even greater responsibilities in heaven. And Jesus teaches this lesson to a crowd of people as our road trip with him is nearing its end. Since January, we've been on the road with Jesus, starting in uh, at the beginning of uh, our later part of Luke chapter 9, when he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and, and we've been going along with him along his trip, and he has almost reached the city. And he has crowds hovering around him, pressing in on him, and they are expecting something extraordinary to happen. And something extraordinary is about to happen, but it's not what they're imagining. And so he is teaching one final lesson before they enter into the city to try and get them ready for what's about to come. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. 
Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is a difficult passage. It's a challenging one to understand fully, a challenging one to apply, and one that's a bit uncomfortable in some spots towards the end. But let's begin by noting that in verse 11, Luke explains the whole purpose of this parable, which is that there's a crowd around Jesus who are expecting the long-awaited arrival of the kingdom of God in all its glory. And so Jesus tells this parable to help them understand that's not how it's going to work. You see, he'd already given them some insight into this, though it wasn't really well listened to. In Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, he had explained to the Pharisees that the kingdom was actually already present in him. He said the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he meant that quite literally. The kingdom of God was standing in the midst of these Pharisees. They were talking to him. And they missed it completely. And so has this crowd. They're expecting very visible, uh, astounding, uh, glorious kingdom of God as predicted in the Old Testament. And so Jesus wants the crowd to understand the already, but not yet, of God's kingdom. That while he had already inaugurated the kingdom of God with his teaching and his preaching and his miracles, it was not yet what it will fully be when he returns in his glory. And so he taught them this parable about his departure and about his eventual return in order to explain to them how his followers need to live in the meantime, which, as we know, is a very long meantime by our standards. Now, before we look at the key lessons of the passage, I want to make sure we are clear on who the characters are in this parable. Now, the nobleman who's going away to receive a kingdom over the, a kingship over this particular land is Jesus, right? The servants are believers in Jesus Christ, and the citizens who hate the nobleman, who oppose his kingship, are those who reject him, those who reject Jesus Christ. And with that understanding, let's go ahead and look at three principles about living our life that Jesus teaches here, and they point to a central truth that God gives each believer one life. Use it well. The first principle is that Jesus won't return immediately. This life is a time of stewardship. Now, stewardship is kind of a fancy word. We don't use it a lot in casual conversation. And, 
And the idea there is of managing something that you are responsible for, you're going to be held accountable for, but you don't own. It's kind of like what most people do in the workplace these days, unless you're the owner of the business. You're, you're taking care of it, you're managing it, you're contributing it for someone else. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that our life in Christ is a time for managing something that doesn't belong to us. Now, verse 12, Jesus is very clear. He is going away to be crowned king, and he will return. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And, and let me make sure we understand, right? He's not going to the far country to receive that as his kingdom. He goes away to the far country to receive kingship of his home country, the place he's leaving from. We'll talk about this in a minute. That's actually how things tended to work in the Roman Empire. So he says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, Jesus was, of course, already the functional king of the world. He had been a key partner in creation. He was eternal. He was ever-present. But he is about to have a formal coronation as the king of, really, the universe, and after which he will reign, as he does today. That coronation is his crucifixion and resurrection. See, less than a week after this particular encounter, a badly beaten and whipped Jesus will be carrying his cross on his bleeding shoulders up to Calvary. There he will be nailed to that cross and he will be hung up to die a horrible, painful death. And at that moment, he will bear on his shoulders all of the sin of the world. All of the sin up to that point and all of the sin ever since, including all of yours and all of mine. And more than that, because of taking that on himself, he will bear the overwhelming anger of God about that sin on himself. And yet this story of crucifixion, which appears to end so terribly, right? it ends in pain, it ends in death, humiliation, but it turns into the coronation of the King of Kings. Because on that first Easter Sunday, he rises from the dead. He is physically alive. He is perfected. He is triumphant over sin and death and evil. And this is the victory and the coronation that he shares with everyone who believes in him as Lord and Savior. This is the victory where he is crowned as king, as he describes in this parable. Where even now, he is ruling from heaven. But nonetheless... As he explained in verse 12, one day he will return in all his kingly glory. Now, as a sidebar, while this idea of going away to receive a kingship seems kind of odd to us, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, it's not really in our cultural understanding of kingship, it actually would have made a lot of sense to his listeners. They were actually used to it working this way, because at this point, both Herod, the great, and then later his awful son, Archelaus, had individually traveled to Rome to petition for the kingship over Israel. Herod's petition was successful. He became the Herod we know from, from the Bible, the built great buildings, homicidal maniac, etc. Archelaus's petition didn't go very well. He was really an awful person. And exactly as described in verse 14, the reason he didn't get the kingship over Israel was because a delegation of Jews went behind him, went to the Romans, and lobbied against him. This is what 
Jesus is kind of alluding to with the story here. But let's be clear, as we see in verse 15, Jesus is crowned the king by virtue of the crucifixion and resurrection. So those who lobby against him are unsuccessful. Now because he has gone away, but he knows it's going to be a while before he comes back, he gave resources and responsibilities to all of his servants, and that includes us. Verse 13 explains, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. So Noaman gave each member of his staff the exact same amount of money, one mina, which is the equivalent of about three months' pay. So it's a good healthy chunk of money, but it's not a ridiculous amount of money. It's not an exorbitant amount of money as, for example, in the parable of the talents, which is a different parable. This is not the parable of the talents. Uh, and they are told to engage in business, which means to invest, to start businesses, to buy and sell, to trade, to do things, to multiply the money, to make the money become more money. And of course, they understood their role. They're the servant, they're the steward, so they don't get to keep any of the money. Both the seed money and the profits are the property of the owner. They are the masters. They will give it to him when he returns. And since the servants are representing believers in Jesus Christ, this command to engage in business until I come still applies today. It applies to us today in 2017 just as much as it did to those original listeners. He has not come yet. His servants are still to be engaging in business for him. It is a command to every believer in Jesus Christ that we are to take what Jesus has entrusted us with and engage in profitable business for him until he returns. Now, am I talking about like we should be running commercial ventures to pile up cash for Jesus? No. What is Jesus' business? He actually said it in the verse before this story. It's in Luke 19, verse 10. The same crowd of people hears him say, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That is the business of Jesus Christ. That is the business we are to be engaging in profitably until he returns. So what has he entrusted us with? What is our mina, if you will? What is the thing that every believer has received equally? Right, Because this is a distinguishing mark between this and its more famous brother, the parable of the talents. Again, a different parable teaching a slightly different lesson. This one's not about gifts or talents because those are distributed unequally. Right? Everybody's got a spiritual gift, but some people have more and they're in different magnitudes. It's not that. What is it that every believer in Jesus Christ has equally? It's new life in Christ. We are each new creations in Jesus Christ. We have each been filled with the Spirit of God. We have each got the life of Jesus in us. We have become a new person inside our old body. And we have been given this life as a stewardship to multiply, to make more minas, right? To make more disciples, to grow the kingdom of God right here in eastern Prince William County and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus wants us to understand out of this story wants us to know and appreciate that our life doesn't belong to us. We didn't make it. We can't sustain it. We can't extend it. We don't own it. 
Our life in Christ was given to us by the Master as a trust. And now we are expected to engage in business, to use it well for Him because it all belongs to Him anyway. This can be super hard for us to remember at times because we're naturally a little bit selfish with our time. And then we live in this type A, rush, rush, go, go, go area that is constantly demanding our time and our energy and our attention. And it gets chips away and we just have next to nothing left some days. And then we think, well, Jesus has been gone a long time. What are my odds? And we think we can get away with shorting that, but we need to remember Jesus has it all. He owns it all. And we need to remember that Jesus won't return immediately. This is more important because of the challenges that, that distract us. That Jesus won't return immediately. This life is a time of stewardship. But the second principle that Jesus is very clear about is that he will return. And everyone will account for the stewardship of their life and be rewarded appropriately. Yes, it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection. And, but we need to be clear, he will return someday. It could be this afternoon. It could be 10,000 years from now. We simply don't know. But whenever it is, verse 15 is clear, that when he returns in glory as the king of the world, we're going to stand before him. Every believer in Jesus Christ will stand before him and show him what we gained for him through our lives. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now that sounds scary. It sounds intimidating, right? It sounds nerve-wracking, this idea of judgment. But let's look at what's going on in this parable. It's making it clear this should be a time of celebration for us. If we're faithful in following Jesus and we're doing the things the Bible says to do, then we have nothing to fear about this judgment. We should be looking forward to it because what we see here is that Jesus loves giving extravagant, enormous, over-the-top gifts to his faithful servants. All right, think about verses 16 and 17. The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Right? He made a small pile of money and he's been given authority over ten cities. That's the kind of over-the-top God we have. Can you imagine hearing these words out of Jesus' mouth someday? I hope so. I mean, more than anything else, that is what I long to hear someday. Well done, good servant. Do you want to hear that? Because you can. We all can. And it doesn't require something extraordinary. It requires being faithful to the job that we have been given by Jesus Christ. Now, this first servant, let's acknowledge, did an extraordinary job. He, he earned ten times the amount of money he'd been given. Okay, that's pretty impressive. He gets great pleasure and commendation from the king, a huge reward. That's not going to be normal, right? That's not necessarily even expected by the clear context of the passage because the next servant made half as much. But Jesus is still thrilled and gives him a great, over-the-top, extravagant reward. 
Verses 18 and 19, the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. If we look ahead at the guy who does nothing, Jesus says, well, he could have at least put it in the bank and earned some interest. And you get the impression he would have been okay with that. Not as big a reward, but okay. I think the point we can get is that any believer in Jesus Christ who puts his or her life to good use for God's kingdom is going to receive an over-the-top reward. So whatever we are called to do by God, and it varies from person to person, Jesus is going to reward that immensely if we're faithful to do it, because that's how he is. He is generous like that, and he delights in, in thinking about and rewarding our work for him. But if we haven't used our life well for him, this judgment is not going to be a celebration. We're going to regret it bitterly. Verses 20 to 26 tell of a lazy servant who wasted his life and, and who clearly misunderstands the nature of his master, right? One thing that is clear from this passage, Jesus is a very, very generous master who gets very excited by faithful service. And yet, somehow this guy claims that he's afraid of him, and because of that, he's wrapped his mina, his responsibility, his stewardship, in a handkerchief to keep it safe. Well, this is a man who's been given new life in Jesus Christ who chose not to use it by engaging in business for the Lord. This is a man who didn't use his life and work to build God's kingdom. And so his responsibility is taken from him and given to the first servant. And the question might be, why does Jesus care so very much about whether we do or don't use our life well for the kingdom? After all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You will go to heaven. That is not in question in this passage. But why does he care so much about what we do if our good works don't save us? It's because of what happens in verse 27 to those people who are not a part of God's kingdom. For those citizens where he says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You see, our choice about whether to use our life that God has entrusted us with to build up his kingdom isn't just about us. It's not just about whether we feel comfortable enough or brave enough or smart enough or educated enough or, or have enough spare time or rich enough to be able to tell the world about Christ or share our story. It is about the fact that every single person who is outside of God's kingdom, whether they, they've in, they are intentionally out there because they have rejected him or because they simply have never heard of him, faces an eternity of spiritual death. An eternity of separation from the God who loves them and is longing for them to join him in his kingdom. So that decision to use our mina, to use our life for the greater good of the kingdom, or else choose to just wrap it up in a handkerchief of self-absorption and, and laziness and busyness and comfort and worldliness, is a decision that has an eternal impact on other people. So what happens to such a disobedient servant? His mean is taken from him. His responsibility is taken. 
this timid or, or lazy servant loses his treasure, and, and I want to be clear, this parable is not saying he's losing his salvation. It doesn't take him out of the group of being a servant. He is still called a servant. He's never grouped with the citizens who are going to be slaughtered. His salvation is secure, but you know he's someone who genuinely believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, but he never submitted to a point where he allowed Christ to be the Lord of his life. Paul paints a very vivid picture that I like a lot. It's not a passage you hear talked about very often, but I like the visualization. It helps me see things for this well. Exactly this scenario, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. And he's talking about building up the kingdom, if you will, on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It's going to become clear what we built with, good stuff or bad stuff. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You can almost smell the smoke on this servant's clothes, who did nothing with the thing he was trusted with. Let's not be the sort of people who will be smelling like smoke in the afterlife. Because make no mistake, Jesus will return and everyone will account for their life and be rewarded appropriately. Now the third principle from this passage is that in heaven our rewards for this life will be joyful responsibilities. I just want to take a moment to consider the nature of the rewards being handed out by this king. Multiplying mean this tenfold, authority over ten cities. Fivefold, five cities. The reward is not getting a bigger harp to play in heaven. And I am so grateful for that because I'm sorry for all the musicians here, that would not be my picture of heaven because I'm not a musical kind of guy. There are people here for whom, yes, that would be. And by all means, I suspect that will be there in your future. The reward is greater responsibility in the new heaven, the new earth is, that's coming. And these rewards are not being reserved for just the, the super servants, the ten, the ten mina servants, the, the apostles and the saints and the, the megachurch, you know, the good megachurch pastors, the Rick Warrens and Tim Kellers of the world. They are available to every one of us who faithfully serves the master with the life he entrusts to us. One of the most important Bible verses that we should know by heart is Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's be clear. We are not saved by good works, right? We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This passage is 100% clear on this. But having been saved, God has prepared good works for each of us to do. If you are six years old and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he has work for you to do. If you are 60 years old and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he has work prepared for you. If you are 106 years old and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has work prepared for you to do. Things to do. And if 
And if at any point in our life we drop out and we are not doing them, then at that time we are wrapping our life in a handkerchief. Because our new life in Jesus Christ is made for doing the good works of God. For engaging in the business of Jesus. So whatever your role is in God's plan, and it changes throughout our lives, right? There are times where for busyness and health, our role may just be to, to pray in all our spare time as, to intercede for the church and for the community and for God's work. But other times, it's to work in the nursery or to teach Sunday school or, or to host a Bible study in your home. And other times, it might be to, to be a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a, or a, a missionary. It can change throughout time. Sometimes it's just being the loving neighbor who really cares for our our next-door neighbor in need and talks to them about Jesus while we're caring for their physical needs. But whatever it is, if we are faithful to do what God has called us to do, we will be rewarded with greater responsibilities in heaven. That's the principle of increasing responsibility that we talked about at the very beginning, and God applies it to our lives. And here are the responsibilities that he gives us in the kingdom today are preparing us for the greater joys and responsibilities of eternity. Unless you're concerned, right? See, I get scared at the prospect of playing a harp and being bored, but if you're concerned about the prospect of having responsibility and working in heaven, let me tell you that it's not like, you know, what you might be looking for tomorrow when you go to work. Right? The responsibilities in heaven will never be boring or dreadful because we're in heaven. Everybody there is perfected and holy and righteous and working together in perfect harmony for God. It's going to be work like God created work to be. Back in the garden, he created work before sin entered the picture. Sin just messed up work. right? It's going to be work the way it's supposed to be, creative, satisfying, fulfilling, meaningful, refreshing, and glorifying to God. But it's not just responsibility, is it? It's authority. That's what's talked about in this parable this morning. And, and look at 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We'll actually be reigning in heaven like kings and queens next to our brother Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.3 asks, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Did you know that? Well, you do now. We have a future of tremendous responsibility if we are faithful today. God gives each believer one life. Use it well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this teaching. We're grateful for the opportunity to participate in your kingdom. But Lord, help us to be faithful in this responsibility to which you've called us. Help us to be the faithful servant who hears at the end, well done, good servant. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The call this morning is to use our life well, to, to manage what we have been given for the glory of the King, so we may receive eternal rewards. And if you haven't yet committed your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's got to be the first step. That's the point where your sins are forgiven, where your place in heaven is reserved forever, where you are given new life in Jesus Christ, where you receive that trust, that life that we are given as a stewardship that we've been talking about. So if you haven't accepted that yet, I invite you to choose Jesus this morning, to embrace him as the living Son of God and as your Lord and Savior. And then in a minute, we're going to sing, and as we do, if you would, I just invite you to come up and meet with Pastor Neil so we can celebrate together.
For all the rest of us, the call is to be faithful stewards of the new life in Christ that we have been given. Are we obedient to God's will? Are we ministering where He has called us? Or are we serving in the wrong place? Are we sitting on the sidelines because we think for some reason we're exempt from the call? Ephesians 2.10 is clear. There is work to be done for each of us. It's time to engage in business for the Master. So if we have been sitting at the sidelines in any aspect of our lives, I ask that you would, you would just pray to God and ask Him to forgive you and to help you find your place of ministry so we can start engaging in business together for the kingdom.